Good evening, Hope. Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. I need to start out getting a drink tonight. I've just been preaching down at the Gold Coast. And they say Romans 8 is like the Everest of the Bible. If you spend too much time there, though, your head starts to spin. You start getting dizzy. So buckle in, pack some oxygen. We're going up to the Alps tonight. Romans chapter 8 is a powerful chapter that is culminating much of the good news that has already come to us in, in Romans so far through, through chapter 3 and onwards, the good news of Jesus Christ, with, which chapter 1 said, is the power of God to salvation for everybody who believes. This gospel has been coming to us in power since chapter 3 onwards. And in chapter 8, he gets to what many have called life in the Spirit, what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, helping us, living with us so that we can obey God? Now we're going to get there. Next week we will start asking the question, what does it look like to live the Spirit-filled life? We will ask many questions through this chapter. But tonight we are going to ask the question of Romans chapter 8, which the first three verses answer, and that is this, what does it mean to be justified? I'm sure there's a lot of us who, who are probably quicker to learn the Christianese than we are to learn the meaning of the words of the Bible. That is that you might know a lot of the T-I-O-N words, the creation, the, the, the election, the predestination, the justification, propitiation, and expiation, and it starts sounding like a rapper if you say it quickly, but you've learned that if in context you hear that word or those words, you can take a pretty good swing at what in the world they mean, but on an exam or maybe if a, another younger Christian was sitting with you and going, can you tell me what that word means? What does it mean to be justified? I wonder how you would answer that question. It is important as we go through Romans 8, we define things. And my job will be, and my task set before us, I'll even tell you so you can hold me to it, is to make Romans 8, which is so intense in glory, extremely clear to all of us. My aim is to make it clear and, 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 and open up its meaning before us. I actually hope that while Romans 8 is a big chapter, a powerful chapter, I want you to be inviting your non-Christian, your new Christian friends. This is going to be an evangelistic, uh, empowering. We have a lot of new Christians in our midst that have come through conversions or other walks of life. You need to know the basics which become the, the glories of the Christian life which we find in Romans chapter 8. So I pray that you would be uh, opening your minds to understand the glories that Paul opens up to us in this chapter. We're going to read now from Romans 8, verse 1 to 3. That will be our text for tonight. Romans 8, verse 1 to 3. Here is the word of the living God to us through Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. May God bless His own inerrant, powerful, divine Word in our midst this evening. We have to understand what justification is, but I can give you a pretty easy definition. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. 
Justification, a legal term, meaning declared righteous. It's the flip opposite of condemnation, which means declared guilty. It doesn't change you. Justification doesn't do something to you. It's an assessment of you and then a declaration about what is already true of you. So condemnation. God doesn't make you an evil person. He reads you. He assesses you. He looks at your record and he condemns you. He says what is already true. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. That's why we're asking the question tonight, what is justification? Even though our text doesn't strictly have that word in it, does it? Chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 doesn't say that we have justification, but it does say that there is no condemnation. So, in essence, in logic, we have justification in the text. You could read it this way. There is therefore now justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be justified means to be released from condemnation. Now, we're going to get a little bit deeper because even our answering that far still leaves us with a million questions. It does if you're thinking. If I say that the gospel is, that the justification of Christ is, that you no longer are condemned, and you think I've finished the job of preaching the gospel, you're dead wrong. Who condemns us? That matters. Who condemns me? What am I condemned for doing? What is the punishment that I receive because of my condemnation? What can I do to be free from this condemnation? How does Christ free me from that condemnation? What does he do to my condemnation to enact this? Do you see how the, there's actually so many questions underneath the, 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 that, that simple definition? If justification means no condemnation, it, it doesn't really get us all that much closer to an answer. So what do we do in Romans 8 when there's this word here, no condemnation that we need to try and get a definition for? We actually go to the third word of tonight's text. There is therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, it means you have to flip forward and look at what the therefore is therefore, theologians like to say. We have to go backwards and look at what is the context that he has just said that then concludes with him saying, therefore, right? In conclusion, he might say, and it means we can't start there. We need to go back further. What is this condemnation? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to go on a hike up the foothills of the Himalayas tonight and walk our way through Romans starting in chapter 1. I won't be able to do it all and I will not be able to do it the justice that it deserves. But by God's grace we'll be benefited by beholding Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 this is the first foundation stone we have to lay in, able to, in order to understand what no condemnation justification means. And that is this, that every single member of the human race, every single member of the human race, young, old, cultural background, race, gender, born or unborn, is currently, presently, in the, in the category of people that are born into being under God's wrath. Every single human being is brought into this world under the status of condemned by God's wrath. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1 in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Bad news. If you're not a Christian, God is against you. He opposes you. You're condemned. He's not for you. He's not your friend. He is not at peace with you. He is against you. 
This is the bad news of the gospel. This is the reality of condemnation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the reality. All human beings are not just under a consequence of our own shortcomings. As many so-called pastors that will try and convince you today that the essence of sin and what the Bible means by condemnation is that you're missing out on your potential. There's just so much good in you and you're not seeing it all come to the surface and, and therefore you're, you're missing out on you. Or that the devil, he's your enemy and he's trying to attack you and that's what all it means to be condemned. No. The essence, the most important sense that the Bible means when it speaks of our condemnation is that God is angry with us. We are condemned because we are under his wrath which burns. It's holding over us as a, as a weight ready to drop, as a judgment ready to burn. God's wrath is present tense. God's wrath is currently and presently hanging over every single member of the human race if they are not justified. That is what is meant by the condemnation of God. We can go further. Look at chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. <clears throat> the truth here is the second foundation stone is that God's wrath is piling up and will culminate in a day of judgment. God's wrath is present tense, not just future. We've already seen that. But God's wrath is also future and will one day fall. Chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and unrepentant or impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you believe the nonsense that there's people today that try and convince you that the Old Testament is full of wrath and Jesus in the New Testament is all love, friendliness, and flowers? Three times in this one verse, do you think there's wrath in the New Testament? You're piling up wrath for the day of wrath when God's wrath is opened up. It's very clear. The New Testament affirms what the Old Testament made clear, that God has against humankind because of our sin... Not just a static wrath. It's not just a, just a still unchanging wrath that is kind of, you know, a, a, a one size fits all. In fact, we need to say it this way. Every time you sin, you increase the wrath that will be poured out upon you on your death. Every sin you commit is like another withdrawal from God's bank account. And that debt is incurring a greater and greater debt every single thought. Every single careless word, every single act, your debt is growing continuously before God. The, the pile of judgment that will be poured out on you is growing with every sin. And one day, what Paul calls the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment, not an unfair judgment, not a, not a he took it too personally judgment, a fair, good, righteous judgment. That if God really is as good as we think, and the Bible says, he, we deserve his judgment. That righteous judgment will be revealed on that day and the earned debt or the piled up wrath, as Paul says, will be poured out on us. So we are universally guilty. The wrath of God is culminating in a day of judgment yet to come. And this is the third foundation stone to lay. Being irreligious doesn't excuse you. 
neither does being religious excuse you. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what people want to say. This is scary. That's why I never came to church until tonight. If it's your first time, welcome. We love you. We preach the Bible, though. This is why some people say, well, well, this is, I'm not religious. This, obviously, this is not good for people's mental health. This is not a safe place for people. This is not good to hear this. And it's pretty, pretty saddening to hear, obviously, condemnation, etc. But I don't believe that. Sure, I'm glad to be out from under God's righteous judgment because I don't believe in it. Try that with a semi-trailer. Go and stand on the M1 facing the, the, the behind you is the oncoming traffic, and you say, I choose to not believe or affirm the existence of semi-18-wheelers. You're going to get flattened or not. Your belief, does, or your stated belief, maybe you've gone on so long in your self-deception, you are actually self-deceived, you genuinely think there is no God. That 18-wheeler filled with the wrath of God is still coming at 120 kilometers an hour. It's going to collect you. Being irreligious doesn't excuse you. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. This is what Paul recognizes that human nature is to say. I'm not religious. I don't agree with that, that word of the documents of the religious text that you're reading. I don't have the law. I grew up without the law in an irreligious home, a secular, atheistic home. I don't have the law. And Paul says, then you'll perish under God's judgment without the use of the law. No problem to God. He doesn't need you to have known the Ten Commandments to judge you. You know what you've got, which will do just fine? Your unconscious. God's just going to hit download on your, your watch history, on your thoughts and your deeds and what you've said. He's just going to look at that. And maybe you didn't recite the Ten Commandments. Maybe you were in a totally irreligious home that denied God. That's fine. Let's, let's just run with what you knew to yourself. God has so implanted the, the seed of religion, we could call it, like Calvin, or we could call it the, the conscience, part of being in the image of God, is that you know what is right and wrong. So that whether you were born and raised with the law of God, written on your fridge and memorized in Sunday school or not, you still knew enough to have not done many of the things you did. You still knew enough that God can call you to account and judge you on the basis of your own sins. So if you don't have the law, you're irreligious, that's okay. God will still condemn you. Look at the rest of the verse. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Hey, hey, I'm not a bad person. I'm not condemned. I'm a Christian. I'm, I've gone to church. I've been baptized, thank you very much, once in an Anglican church, then at a youth group party, then at a Pentecostal church, and then again when I came to a Reformed Baptist. It's been done for a while. I'm a Christian. I know the law. I'm, I'm not a, 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 a pagan. I'm not a villager. I'm not a tribesman who's ignorant. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Bible person. And Paul says, knowing the law doesn't save you. If you've been a law person, a religious person, and you think that's enough, what's going to happen is perishing according to the law. Everything you did know, the Bible you did recite, God will take that up, assess you, and will he find in you perfect righteousness or a breaking of every law? He will find you condemned, guilty. And the reason of that is, uh, number four, the fourth foundation stone to lay, as we work at this idea of condemnation and justification, the reason that being religious, knowing the law, doesn't save you, 
is because the law can't save you. The law has no ability whatsoever to save you. Let me say it this way. The law doesn't even know how to save somebody. The law has no inkling, no idea, no frame of reference for how to make somebody less judged. The law is like a one-way valve. It's like a ratchet that doesn't go the other way. It knows how to push you further towards the piled-up wrath of God on the day of judgment and nothing else. It doesn't know how to hit reverse on the, on the conveyor belt. It doesn't know how to pull you away from God's wrath. The only thing the law knows how to do is shove you towards judgment. The law cannot save. The law was not designed to save. The law does not know how to save. It will be the standard of your judgment, but it cannot be the way to your salvation. What a daunting, therefore. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. What a daunting and horrible, terrifying prognosis you must be in for the expert in your field to say, I have nothing I can do for you. To go before a doctor or, a, or, 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 or some kind of a technical expert on your current health problem, you sit uh, next to the world's greatest expert on the condition and they say, you and me cannot work. I have nothing to offer you. What a horrible prognosis we must have if the law of God, perfect in every ounce, looks at us and says, I can't help you at all. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. By working according to the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Or if we replace the word justified with no condemnation, you can read it like this. By works of the law, no human being will receive the no condemnation verdict in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is why the law can't save you. This is why trying to obey the law can't save you. Because as the law comes into your life, it's like a beaming lamp and light and lantern. The closer it gets to you, the more filthy you see yourself and your surrounds to be. So, so that as the law comes in, it shows you like a mirror. It shows you how guilty you are, how filthy you are, how vile you are, but it can't do anything to cleanse you. Have you ever tried washing grime off with a mirror? It doesn't work. The law merely exposes sin. That's one of its jobs. It can't undo sin. It can't lessen the verdict of God's condemnation against sin. But there's more. Go to Romans chapter 7. Is the fifth thing. <clears throat> we're all under God's wrath. It's going to culminate in judgment. Being religious or irreligious doesn't help. God's law can't save you. This is the fifth one. The law of God, perfect as it is, actually makes you more sinful. Sometimes we don't realize this about the law. You think that what I'm saying is, yeah, as the law comes in, I realize I am more sinful than I realized before. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you go to hell, and I pray you do not, but if you go to hell, your hell will be worse for knowing the law than if you never knew it. When you don't know God's word, and then somebody speaks God's word to you, if it doesn't result in faith and repentance, you're more sinful than when you had heard it. The law comes and increases transgression, Romans 5 verse 20 says. Look then, and what it says here in chapter 7, verse 8 through 12. 
Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lay dead. It could say sin was lying dormant, and the law woke it up. The law blasted in through the front door, rang the bell, clanged all of the pots, and then sin woke up, and then it was ready for action. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised to be life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is not saying, I'm not saying that the law is the problem. I'm saying the law is the problem. He's not saying, in other words, the law is evil. He's saying you're so evil that when the good law comes into your life, it makes you worse. Maybe you have, uh, in your past or in your uh, history, you've tried to utilize a medical uh, bandage or cream or, 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 or application of some kind, and, it ma- and, and you found out that you were allergic to it. This happens every now and then when you're in hospital. It turns out you're allergic to the tape, you're allergic to the cream they use. So, so a small problem became an anaphylactic response, puffed up like a strawberry, because the, 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 the good, the good uh, uh, cream, the good tape, the, the good thing they offered you, your very nature was opposed to it, and it created an agitation. That's what Paul's saying with the law. You're so evil, you're allergic to God's goodness. You have an inbuilt, visceral reaction of vomiting out both ends, scratching, flaming red anger when you see and hear God's law. That's what happens to you. You're allergic to God. That's how sinful we are. It means here, that, as he's saying this, that the law of God given to us, exposed to us, coming into our mind, it agitates and excites sin. So that Paul used the example of covetousness. He says, before the law told me, don't covet, I was just sitting there kind of happy. And then I said, what's coveting? And the theologian told me, well, coveting is when you see everybody else's nice stuff and you want it. And you go, yeah, they do have nice stuff. And I don't have it. And I do want it. Well, damn, here I am going to hell now. Thanks, law. It's like, uh, I I would like to, I, I wanted to start out saying, I'm sure this is just me. I'm sure it's not. One time I went to a roller coaster at a theme park and I was sitting there. I was about 12. I'd waited like a few years to be able to get on this ride. And it was one of the ones where your legs dangle over and you had to be so tall and so old. And I was finally old and tall enough to get on. And there I was sitting on and as this teenager's going through and buckling everybody up, he stops and looks at me and says, do not under any circumstances pull this lever. Keeps going. I go, Okay. I didn't know there was a lever under there. What does it do that makes you so careful about this little instruction you just gave? And if I can ask, why in the world is it within arm's reach for me on this trip? If it's so dangerous, why'd you put it right there underneath my harness? That that seems, now I really want to try it out. Uh, And so I did. And and so the story goes. Uh, As soon as somebody says to you, do not touch it, you go, oh. That sounds like a lot of fun. 
Okay, I, on the, the same trip, I remember somebody saying, okay, I just want to confess this to all of you. I've never once wanted to drop a 20-cent coin on somebody's head from four stories up and kill them. This is a confession of mine. Sitting in the roller coaster, a different one this time, and the guy says, please make sure that you have emptied all of your pockets. Do not drop money from the ride. It can fall into people's skulls and kill them. And that, set, not a desire of mine beforehand, but that sounded pretty intense and cool for a 14-year-old teenager. I go, why'd you even mention that? Because I've got 20 cent coins, and now I, now I might be going to jail. That's what the Lord does to us. We're sitting there, and, and sure, we're sinful, but, but, but when the law comes, it excites something in us we didn't even know we wanted to do. Don't offend God by doing X, Y, Z, and we go, that is exactly what I want to do. I want to rebel against him. I want to oppose him. Now, maybe you don't think this way because the therapeutic uh, spirit of our day teaches you to believe you're just so darned good, you're just so darned nice, and a little bit of a, a spirituality or, or therapy or counseling will just make you the best you can be. You are a wretch, a vile, like me, born under God's wrath. We're allergic to God. Romans 8 goes on to say, you are actually born in a state of being an enemy of God, and despising him, hostile against him. He walks in the room, you get angry. That's the kind of relationship we have. And therefore, this condemnation that is being spoken of here is universal, damning. The law comes in and just makes us even worse. And, and what this is called in, in Paul's understanding is this relationship that you and I have naturally to the law of God, that it condemns us and makes us sin even more, it's called the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is not referring to God's law. That's God's law. The law of sin and death is sort of a catchphrase Paul's using to talk about your relationship to the law of God. And he says, when the law of God walks in, maybe some of you have this family member or an in-law. I don't know, just guessing. And when they walk into the room, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your fists get clenched, and you want people to start clearing out and calling the shots. That you, if you were to ever be told by your spouse or by somebody trying to mediate, you guys need to go and spend a weekend away together at the beach. One of you would bury the other person. Or if they said, you need to sit down at the coffee table across one another and really chat this out, you know that the very discussion that was meant to bring you closer would in fact be a bigger wedge and a greater hostility than you ever had before. That's the relationship you have, not just with your mother-in-law, but also with the law of God. Do you see what we're saying? There's a relationship you have with the law that is called the law of sin and death. The more time you spend with the law, the sinner, more sinful you get. The more time you spend with the law, the more guilty you get, the more wrath you get, the more condemned you get. Now go to Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This wrath, guilty verdict against us is gone. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what the gospel is. 
is that God comes in and does something, which we'll talk about soon. He does something to break you free from this relationship you have with the law, which results in two things, only ever condemnation and spiritual slavery. That's the law of sin and death. In your life, the law and you, the relationship you have is the law of sin and death. That's what the Spirit comes and breaks. The law of sin and death results in two things for sinners. One, a legal thing. Secondly, an experienced thing. The one, the verdict, is a guilty verdict. That's a legal reality. The second thing the law of sin and death results in is a spiritual bondage. You are trapped underneath sin's control and you can't do anything but sin. So when the Spirit comes in then to break the law of sin and death, what he's doing is removing the guilty verdict and removing the spiritual enslavement to sin so that you you can do something other than just sin. Now, verse 4 onwards, looking at it next week, is going to be the beginning of the exploration of that second idea. To those who have been freed from the law of sin and death, to those who have the Spirit breaking us into liberation, To those who are in Christ Jesus, what does it mean to no longer be slaves to sin, but instead be empowered and led and filled with the Holy Spirit? But the first part of being broken out of the law of sin and death, the first part is our legal verdict. That legal verdict changes from condemnation to justification. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. The law finds you sinful, declares you guilty, says you're condemned, God's judgment is coming. Now, somehow, in Christ Jesus, by our connection to Christ Jesus, because we're in Christ Jesus, because we've joined accounts with Christ Jesus, I'm not condemned anymore. I'm no longer guilty. I'm not going towards judgment. The great question is, what does that mean? How? How did this? Let's ask first, Who did this justification? What does the verse say? Verse 2. How are you made free? How are you released from condemnation? Who did it? Verse 2. For, sorry, verse 3. For God has done. God is the one who with us lost in our sin and our misery when the ladder from heaven was sent down called law that only condemned everybody, when there was no hope that we in and of ourselves could ever make it to God's good side, God sent himself. God did something. God fulfilled the need. God did all that was required to save us. It is God who has enacted salvation through the process of justification. The next question is, where, and and if you've been paying attention, And if you take Romans to be the word of the living God, and if you've heard that you are guilty, that there's a pile of wrath awaiting you, there's a pile of sin in your account, and then you hear, there's no sin anymore. You're righteous. The question that anybody who cares about God's justice and cares about what Romans said would say, where did my sin go? That was a large pile to just be swept under a rug. If it's coming back, I want to know about it. 
If it's sitting around a corner, I want to know about where is it? It's the boogeyman. It, it, it is my worst enemy. My sin earns God's judgment. So if my sin is just swept to the side for a time, I need, what happened to my sin? The Mount Everest of guilt that stood blocking out the Son of God's graces. Where is it? And Romans 8 verse 3 tells us, it is in Christ's grave. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. The law had no problem, but it wasn't meant to save sinful flesh. It couldn't do that. It could never get sinful flesh to a status of righteous in God's eyes. Never able to do that. So what did God do? He sent who? His son. How? In likeness of sinful flesh. For what? For sin. The who is God's own son. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by... Sending his own son. That's who? His own son. He didn't delegate this to an angel. He didn't give Michael the archangel another job to do. He sent his own son, who was the very nature and imprint of himself. God sent himself in the person of his son. That's the who. The how. How how did Jesus come? It says here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is as close as Paul can get to saying that Jesus was sinful without saying that Jesus was sinful. He came in the very likeness of human sinful flesh, but not sinful. He became one of us, but there was something different about him. But it's not that he wasn't human. It's, it's, it's really that he was more human. He, he's not that, it's not that he was more than us. It's that he was us minus the sin. Us as we were meant to be. God became one of us in our flesh, truly human, true body, real human nature. And here's the why, for sin. Why did God come to earth? For sin. To deal with sin. To solve the problem of your sin. Maybe you're not a Christian and you feel really judged by everything I've said, which is really just what the Bible says. I want to tell you, this is the good news. God has sent his son for your sake, so that you can be freed from the sin that earns you his judgment. God saved you from himself, by himself, in the person of his son. And here's the technical language. Where did my sin go? It went into Christ. Look at this, at the rest of what happened in verse 3 here. He's in our sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's, He's doing what he's doing for sin, and here's what God did. The he here is the father. The father condemned sin in the flesh. Your sin was committed by you. My sin was committed by me. They were committed, there were sins transgressed by humans. And therefore it must be human beings in human nature that suffer the wrath of of God for those human sins. An angel wouldn't count. Another lamb, a million lambs laid on the altar cannot redeem what has been done by my own nature. The the punishment, the payment for sin had to be human life. Therefore, human life had to be offered and thus it was in Jesus Christ. Jesus came for sin and God condemned our sin in the flesh. The gospel of Jesus is not that God changes mind and doesn't care about sin anymore. The gospel is not 
that God swept in into a faraway galaxy and doesn't look at it anymore. The gospel is not that God doesn't want to condemn you anymore and he'll break his law in order to save you. Not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is that your sin has been condemned in your flesh but not experienced by your experience. It was condemned, punished, destroyed, tortured. The penalty was paid by someone in the likeness of your flesh, in a representation of your flesh, in the substitution of your flesh, so that you died in somebody else's death. This is the gospel of penal substitutionary atonement. This is the very heart of the gospel, that God punished our sin. He's so just. He's so holy and righteous. He would never, ever let an ounce of your sin go unpunished. But he's so loving, so filled with mercy and grace that he punished your sin without you having to experience it. Therefore, he condemned sin, yes, but he condemned it in his own experience. In his own son being a human, dying on the cross, that is what happened. And therefore we see that Jesus Christ is where our sin went. He died, he was in the grave. When he came back up, your sin remained buried, remained gone. Where did the Mount Everest of your sin go? Into the infinite pit of the blood, of the mercy, of the deep, deep well of Jesus' love and grace and righteousness. He swallowed every ounce of your sin. He absorbed every ounce of the wrath of God for your sin and it's all paid now. It is all accomplished now. It is all a finished payment on your behalf. We could then ask, secondly, if that's where my sin went, where'd my righteousness come from? No condemnation or justification. What does it mean to be justified? It means that the judge looks at you and says... On the basis of your account and record, you don't have any sin, we just covered that, and on the account of your record, you've completely fulfilled every legal requirement of righteousness. That is that justification deals with both the negative and the positive. You don't have the negative sin, but you do have the positive righteousness in your account, which is worthy of such a declaration of righteous. Now here's the question, where did my righteousness come from? It's in my account. I'm very glad it's there. I called up the debt collecting agency and they told me, I'm actually, I'm actually in the positives. I'm in the green here. Okay, that's great. Where did that come from? Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Where did the righteousness come from? And what is this righteousness that could satisfy God and his law? Verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known, brought to, be, brought to reality apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets do bear witness about it. This is a, a righteousness that the law, Old Testament, and the prophets spoke about, but it's not by obeying those people or those laws that you get it. The law and the prophets, in other words, spoke about a righteousness better than them. Better than human obedience. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you see that the righteousness that you now have in your account 
is human because it came from Jesus Christ, the man, who is in flesh. But it is God's righteousness, verse 21 says, and verse 22. It's God's righteousness because God was in your flesh, enacting those laws, earning the righteous standard. So that now it is this. All those who believe, all those people, anybody, you tonight, if you've never believed on Jesus, you tonight can be transferred into a status of absolute acceptation and perfection in in the sight of God. He can look at you and say, according to my divine absolute standards, as I judge you with my divine absolute law, I see in your account, your account, a divine absolute infinite righteousness. There's a life lived here that collected and, 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 and ticked off every one of God's laws. Who lived this life? Jesus Christ in my place. Jesus has lived the life for you, gives you that righteousness. Jesus now, when you have faith in him, you are, you are accounted as dead to the law. So go to Romans 7. This is going to be our last reading from Romans. Romans chapter 7, and then we'll finish off in... Romans 8. So Romans 7 verse 1. Here's what Paul's using an analogy. He says, don't you know, brothers, I'm I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And then he goes to use the marriage example. You don't have to uphold your marriage vows to somebody who who has passed away. Uh, So also, if, if somebody tries to break into your house and they get caught in one of your bear traps that you lay out because you're a legend and they die, you can't report them to the police. The law can't... You're looking at me with blank faces because that is so obvious. You wonder why it took an apostle to say that. Of course, if you're dead, you can't be dragged into court. So obvious. Here's what Paul's saying. What if you could fake your death in front of the law of God? What if you could live, but on paper, on the legal side of things, the law counts you as dead? Then you'd pay no taxes. How good would that be? You would have no driver's license. You would not have to, you would have no bondage according to the law because you're dead. Read verse 4 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, now he's going to make a gospel application. You also have died to the law. You're dead. Did you know that you've died? Did you know that you're dead in a sense right now? And you might say, when did I die? When did I die to the law? When was my death published? When when did that happen? The answer is given in the rest of the verse. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That is, to him who has been raised from the dead. Do do you know what justification it is? As, As we clarify it and give it a couple of last closing sentences, what does it mean to be justified? It means that technically, you're dead. The law can't find you. The law can't see you. You're not in their books. The law can never condemn you. It means, secondly, that Jesus Christ has paid in his death all of your debt that you owed to God for your sinning. And it means, thirdly, that Jesus has filled up the account of righteousness for you so that God can look at you and declare After he assesses your account, he looks at you. While your life is still not perfect, he can look at your accounts in in heaven's courtroom and say, this person is righteous. They can have every blessing that any act of righteousness would ever deserve. Now let's reread Romans 8. 
as if God was looking you square in the eyes and saying it to you. As if Paul was sitting across the coffee table and for the first time you've placed your faith in you. Maybe tonight you've been struggling with your faith to know your identity in Christ, to know where you stand with God, to know whether your current sin is, is going to condemn you. Paul's going to sit across the table from you and say this. Or tonight, if, if you're not a believer and you feel now you want to place your faith in Christ, this is what Paul would say to you. Or if you're thinking about it, this is what is put on the table as an offer, and I commend to you, take this promise up. Is what Paul says to anybody who just believes in Jesus and calls on his name. He says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you, because you are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done for you what the law, weakened by your flesh, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of your sinful flesh and for your sin, he condemned your sin in his flesh. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach you, we remind ourselves and we submit to what you have said through Paul, that we are naturally not good. We are naturally evil. And we so quickly forget that. Even, even as Christians, we get used to approaching you and your grace becomes less and less amazing. We, we, we forget just how desperately it be Christ and Christ alone or we are condemned. Father God, please remind us. Sharpen our minds to the reality that without Christ, we are less than nothing. We are rebellious, vile enemies under your righteous wrath. Lord, there are some tonight who are still in that very status and as they relate to you, it is through your law and therefore they are under your just condemnation. We pray, Lord God, that you would give to them faith in their heart to lean and rest and call to Jesus so that they could be saved from your condemnation, saved from the law of sin and death and experience the, the, the verdict that is given through Jesus, not guilty righteous, perfect in my eyes. Father God, I pray that you would save them. I pray that those who know you but are so disheartened by their own sin or their own lack of grasp of the gospel that you would enrich them, that you would encourage and edify them and set them firm on this rock, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those of us who are, who are firm and confident in this gospel that you would once again strip away every sense of self-righteousness that you would remind us that to be justified is to do with nothing that we have done and everything that Jesus has done so that we can rightly give you glory and rely on him for this. Father God, we glorify you. We thank you in the name of the one whom you sent to deal with our sin. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.